Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, it's Michael Waits from ATP Stories, and I'm here with the founder of Manexo Fintech this, with um, Mukesh Bubna. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great, Michael. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it's awesome to talk to you. So we were talking a little bit offline. You moved recently to India. I presume you're originally from India. Is that correct? Yes, uh, I've been. Uh, I, I was born, brought up here, but for the last twenty years, I was spending time across Asia Pacific. So it's uh, both a homecoming, but at the same time, it's quite foreign to me now. Yeah, I mean, I like to say that reverse culture shock is way worse than culture shock, right? Yes, it is. It is uh, both from uh, cultural as well as once you get used to a Hong Kong or a Singapore kind of infrastructure. It, it, it's quite a while before you can get used to Indian infrastructure uh, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. So I've lived, I left the United States, right? I got on a plane at JFK in New York in February of 1990. <laughs> okay, so just think about that. And I have not lived in the United States since then. Wow. Wow is right. So, you know, while you can say maybe that the difference between living in Mumbai or north of Mumbai is way different than living in Hong Kong, just think about just how different the world is over the last almost 30 years. I could never go back and live in the States, right? And that's exactly when when I was working with City, uh, I had these colleagues who would come over from uh, US, Europe to Asia and right. we would do a tour of countries like Philippines, Indonesia, India, China, Thailand, and they would be just, first of all, the whole experience of checking into a hotel <laughs> where, where you are actually have a bellboy who takes your luggage up, right. irrespective whether you're carrying a small one or a big one, yep. versus where when you go to U- U.S., whether you're checking in Waldorf Astoria or Marriott and you're carrying a big luggage or small, <laughs> you carry it yourself, right. that would pull them over. But what would bowl them over was the chaos and the population. And I could not fathom why they're getting worried about it because I had never been to U.S. Right. I first went to U.S. in 96. And when I went there and I saw the green pastures and everything so well organized, I said, yes, now I understand why they can't cross a road in Thailand or Indonesia by themselves and I need to hold their hand. <laughs> but it's funny, though. I think the bit has flipped a little bit. I mean... I've never been to India, so I planned to go there back in 1998, but you know, the person, my traveling partner, got really sick and ended up not going. I'm not in India, so it had nothing to do with it. It's just my, my traveling partner got really sick. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it turns out, I'm, like, when I get off the plane, and I haven't been in the United States either since 2010, so that's a long time ago. <laughs> but I'd have to say this, that it always seemed to me that the road in... So, first of all, I live in, in Bangkok, right? So, Swanabum Airport is beautiful, it's modern, it's brand new, and it seems quite organized to me. And I always thought when I got off at the airport at JFK that it was archaic and old, and that the road system, if you've ever been on sort of the JFK Parkway and the roads into Manhattan... You know, nothing against New York. It's a great city, but boy, the roads kind of needed a little bit of work, it seemed to me. And I think the bit slipped a little bit. And I think I understand now why, you know, when a Japanese person or a Thai person or an Indonesian person gets off the plane at JFK, they're scared. Yes, as well as I think one thing which hits you is you get used to the gray skies in Asia. And when you go to Europe and US, you start seeing blue skies and stars. 
which is very rare occasion now, except if you are in outskirts of Bangkok or you've gone outside Bangkok into one of those beach resorts. That's where you start seeing stars. So Yeah, it's really funny. So there was a very famous story circulating in Tokyo in the mid to late 90s where you know, a Japanese father took his son, his young son, to Hawaii, which is a popular destination for Japanese travelers, yes. right? And yes. at nighttime, he looked up at the sky and said, Daddy, what are those things in the sky? <laughs> and his father was like, okay, we got to move. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. And I think it's kind of a fake story, but still, that was the story that was being told because, I mean, I don't have that so much in Bangkok. I think the sky's pretty clear here and stuff like that, but still, in, in Tokyo, it was kind of polluted. People used to make fun of me because they used to run on the street, and they're like, you may as well just go have a cigarette because it's just as good for your lungs. Yes, yes, that's what we tell told ourselves in Hong Kong, and uh, there's a lot of uh, trail running in Hong Kong. Yeah, but yeah, a lot of the, and trail hiking as well, right? Yes, and but there are months out there where the whole uh, and as as winter approaches, when you really want to go up in the mountain, there are days when the smog is just sitting there because it's all coming from the northerly northerly winds right. into Hong Kong. Uh, and it just sits there, and it's a complete gray sky for a couple of months. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, look, I used to come to Thailand on vacation before I lived here, and part of the reason for coming was the blue skies and mm -hmm. the great and the great weather. And actually, we're just about to come in to the end of rainy season here, right? It's like May to middle of October, mm -hmm. and once you hit November, December, January, and February, it's got to be the best weather in the world. Oh it's yes, just beautiful. I mean, just beautiful. So you can wake up in the morning. It's an outlier, but I've had it be like 16 or 17 degrees in the morning, and then it gets to like 28, 29 in the afternoon. It's just insanely good. Yes. No, I I have few, uh, I would say, uh, colleagues who have set up a startup, uh, but they realize the cost of living in Thailand is so much lower hmm. uh, that they move to Thailand, uh, and they're working out of there. While their product is not necessarily for Thailand itself but they're building out everything in thailand because they said my dollar goes much further here than in hong kong yeah it's a really interesting question right i mean hong kong itself so when i left tokyo mm -hmm. i had to pick a place to move and i was not moving out of asia right whether it was southeast asia or north asia there was no way i was moving to europe and there was no way i was moving to the united states just because you know i'd been in the region for so long and for me the business opportunity was still here right mm -hmm. and i always thought like you know, India obviously has a, has a massive opportunity as well, as does China. But those markets seem to, to me, and you can tell me I'm wrong, right, but to have sort of a domestic edge to them. And I didn't have an edge in any one of those countries, right? Like, And I still think India is a huge opportunity. We'll talk about that when we talk about Manexo as well. Um, but living in, in Bangkok has gives me access through two really great airports to the rest of the region and the rest of the world. Um, it also gives me access to a great quality of life. In other words, the value for your money is just so high, among yes. other things, right? Because you mentioned chaos before. It's a great word, right? Mm -hmm. I think from the outside, and I, th I believe India is probably the same way, right? And that is, it seems really chaotic when you look at it from far away. But I also like to think that there's order inside that chaos and that the people that really understand how to not deal with but harness that, that order and that chaos are the people that can really succeed because it's not easy. Yes, it's I, not I completely, agree. Yes, completely agree. In fact, when we think about uh, today, uh, compare, it, compare U.S. to China 
on various things. If you look at it, surely WhatsApp started in U.S. or Facebook started in U.S. But yep. with the chaos which you see in China, uh, the platforms which are maybe a clone of these two companies have done a much better job uh, of and adding features. And now people are saying that U.S. and Europe have to learn from uh, how to deal with this chaos uh, and how to deal with these con- these customers, which are leapfrogging from having not a landline, but straight into mobile and then adapting it very, very quickly and with the best features. So sometimes these chaos are complete boon to uh, consumers. Well, it's an incredible and, and boon for innovation for sure, right? Yes. yes. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. And, you know, I make the case often that um, whether it's China or India or Southeast Asia, that the lack of existing legacy systems, whether that's landlines or other types of installed technology and also installed vested interests as well, means that you can innovate a lot faster because you're not in a way, in a way, right? You're not disrupting so many people. So there aren't as many sort of institutions in the way either, right? Yes, as well as I think there's a latent... Uh need for it and the new technologies have really brought down access much faster as well as uh, they're affordable because the scalability is so high like i looked at india landline if i i recollect correctly india number of landlines to uh population was like one in hundred as as late as in 2000s but now if you if you look at it mobile phone uh, and it's only 16 years since 2000, I would say it's like 9 out of uh, 10 or 99 out of 100 have mobile phones. Right. Uh, and, and that is purely the cost. In fact, sometimes I find India mobile services much cheaper than the Western world because, hey, one, there's a larger competition. There's no monopolistic practices right now, which has come up to the huge, the, the everybody's investing into providing the best service at the same time at a much affordable cost and uh, uh, people who were never included in the mobile revolution or a, a, a communication revolution of a voice are suddenly talking on a mobile phone uh, and, and that's the main means of communication for them. Right, and it also means that you know the US has what, 300 and let's say 30 million people. <laughs> that's yes. like one-fourth the size of India. Yes. It just means that the opportunity you know, for growth in, if you think about it, a frictionless market, but also, like you said, there's a, there's this latent demand, right? In other words, as cell phone markets and sort of technology markets have developed and products have developed in the United States, people have sort of been adopting them bit by bit over time. And they probably haven't even noticed the transition from landlines to mobile to Snapchat, like to all this stuff. Whereas in India, like we said, and similar to China, because there were no legacy systems, you know, kind of one day everybody woke up and there was an Android phone and people were like, I'm going to get one of those. Yeah. And, and then and boom, I, everything changes. Yes. And, 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 and uh, in fact, uh, Nokia is not a known name anymore in the global yep. phone player. But uh, Nokia had a great success in India in uh, uh, late, uh, mid-2007, mid-2008 when wow. they released a phone which was uh, maybe 15 US dollar. Right. And everybody just bought that. Uh, and it's still a very popular phone in India uh, because it 
one it just does two things one is voice second is sms and third is it last long like three days without any charging which is like unheard of or even four days if you're not a very frequent user so for a lot of people who are at a low income bracket which is the key need for them is to be contactable and and right. people they taking instruction or running their business like a small uh, 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 a small tailor shop he needs to be he's not operating from the metropolitan hub of the city he's operating maybe 100 kilometers out but uh, somebody wants to connect with him earlier it would have been only way to do is he had to travel 100 kilometers in now he's got a, that that $15 phone which is doing the trick for him yeah right so again it's almost like a minimum viable product and the yes. thing is that once that tailor you said who's in the outskirts of the city has that mobile phone and has that connectivity you know and this is a segue probably into some of the things that you're doing and think about the types of services and think about the latent demand that's available and the things that are available to be served right and banking or financial services has to be key because the key like driver for economic growth for almost any financial system is just being able to have access to money and to be able to transact quickly, efficiently, and um, and frictionlessly, yeah? I completely agree. Uh, I think the whole process of uh, a phone, I think, is a great first driver of the financial inclusion, if I may think of. It is, In a right? broader way, yes. Uh, for us today... We don't do, in fact, when I joined the bank way back in 1990s, early 90s, India was just starting on a consumer banking drive and City was one of the uh, early uh, companies to bring consumer banking to India. And we used to literally send a human being to check whether what you're telling me is correct. So if you applied for a loan, <laughs> we would send a human being to your home and say, hey, uh, you applied for a loan. Let's check out whether you live here or not. Uh, do you have a refrigerator? Do you have a washing machine? What kind of a lifestyle do you live? And that was our credit assessment broadly. Wow. So do you want to talk a little bit about, so how did you get into Citibank, right? Because you said you grew up in India, but then you lived, I'm presuming, between Hong Kong and Singapore mostly. So how did how did that happen? Can you start there and then maybe progress through? Because I want to, establish like what the financial background is so that then we can get to the founding of Monex if that's okay. Sure, Monexo, sure. excuse me. Yeah. So uh, uh see I, I I grew up in Calcutta and uh wow. did all my education there. Uh it was completely by chance in one of my degrees, my post graduation degrees, uh we are supposed to do one year work in one of the industrial companies. So either it can be a bank, it can be a, a production house, it could be any any kind of company at that time. And banking was just coming in in India, I would say, at 1990s. Earlier, the banking was there, but they were not modern. They were all paper-based banking. And that would not attract any of us to think of going and working with those uh, state-owned banks because uh, it was very hierarchical, it was very, uh, I would say, rundown buildings, rundown offices. So it, it never attracted talent. Uh, and here what this course requires me to do a one-year training, I get an opportunity to 
uh, apply at City, Citibank, and I sort of sail through the interview process, and I go through one-year training, and I start enjoying what I'm doing because, frankly, there's nothing there. We are building it out, and right. I have the same level of responsibility as somebody who's been working for two years in the bank. Wow! And I'm given I'm given the same level of respect as somebody who's been five years in the bank. Right, so that's, that's amazing, like, right? That's just amazing. And uh, come one year later, when I qualify from the institute, uh, they ask me, would you like to continue and uh, help us grow? Uh, with, with that as a foundation where you're given a responsibility at a very early age, and you're given not only responsibility, you're given an ability to fail. I was never ever told that I should not fail. I was, in fact, one of my... Uh, supervisor would tell me, tell me what have you done wrong in the last one month? Wow. Right? That, that, that was the culture. So Citibank was a, almost like a startup culture at that time. Yeah, and, so very different like from what you explained earlier about the state-owned enterprises, right? In a sense where it was just a hierarchical thing. You come in as a young male or female. You get treated like you've never been there before. You're not given any responsibility. You kind of have to peck your way up the pecking order, right? Yes, so I, I felt, okay, why don't I give it a shot for a couple of years because uh, it'll be a fantastic experience. And that couple of years turned out to be 22 plus years. I saw but, that. There's <laughs> only one logo on your LinkedIn page and it's Citibank. Yeah. And that's amazing, actually. And, yeah. and good for you, right? Because it's so rare. You know, I kind of felt like I was going to do that too when I joined Morgan Stanley. And it was just so hard because Morgan Stanley changed a lot when I was there, right? I joined Morgan, and then it merged with Dean Witter. It went from being 8,000 people to like 45,000 people, which is a different company. Yes. And, and, and never, never was a challenge of uh, growth or challenge or ability to learn new things. So the fact that if you think of what I did, I worked in, I started back in operations. So looking at consumers, uh, uh, operation saying, okay, should we give a loan to them? He wants to transfer money overseas. Can we transfer funds or not? All those kind of hands-on like a factory of uh, any organization. And one day I said, I've done this enough. We've set up a, a outsourced company for City, which now runs the operation for uh, uh, 24 by 7. Wow. And I, I hired about 500 people and trained them. I, I think I've done enough of this. I would like to work on technology and start building platforms. Yep. And uh, my boss said, why not? And he put me on not only to a project which is never done. We were trying to build an internet banking at that time. It's early 2000s. City was starting to move to internet banking. And I had no experience about internet or internet banking. Well, nobody did so, really, did they? <laughs> yeah, nobody had, yes. So he said, go run this project and build a platform. Good for you. What a great move, right? Yes, perfect. And I land up uh, in Singapore and uh, this gentleman, uh, Australian guy with almost 40 years of technology experience, uh, I think he joined from school. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, he's in his mid-50s and I'm like young. He says, what do you know about internet banking? I said, actually, nothing. Right. <laughs> I know the same thing you know. I'm just younger than you. That's about it. Yes. <laughs> I so look says, like how, I know. Yeah. He says, how are you going to build this platform? Because this this platform has to be built for Asia Pacific. So it has to have Tagalog. It has to have Bahasa. 
it has to have uh, Malaysian and it has to have uh, whatever Malaysian Chinese and it has to have English these are minimum four languages and uh, it has to be this 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 I said fantastic uh, let me just understand what customers do today how they do it so I will need seven days of no meetings internally but I'll visit the branches, I'll speak to consumers, I'll speak to the operations staff, and I'll speak to sales staff. That's all I'm going to do for the next seven days, and then I'll let's meet up again. Right, because I love the concept, actually. Yeah, so he said, why are you doing this? This is the system requirement. Read this. I said, yeah, I'll read that also. Give it to me, but let me go and meet people first. Uh, and as I realized that the system requirement and what the consumers or the 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 sales staff wanted was not there at all right it wasn't in the spec probably that had been written out because there's no, no way and you know this you obviously knew this whether correct whether um intuitively or just from experience you knew like if you're going to build services for people you have to go and talk to those people yes and and it was actually the document was already six months old right so the fact that it was sitting on somebody's table for six months the consumers had moved on our systems had moved on so if I had built on that document and it would have taken me six months to build it out. At least, uh, yeah. Yeah, so we would have been completely, uh, the, and the system would have been not talking to correctly or uh, consumers wouldn't have adopted and the project would have failed. Right. So that was a great learning. I went back to him and said, these are the few findings. She said, what do you want to do then? I said, this is what I want to do. I want to bring all of you in in one room it's going to be a large room and uh, we're going to do module by module discussion and there's no paper we're going to sit up on a whiteboard and draw things up you're going to say what the inputs are what the outputs are and how the screen should look like we're going to keep iterating it right it's so funny right because today when i have a business meeting i always get frustrated is the wrong word right but i always i'm always more um animated when i have a whiteboard Yes. And it's always so, more interactive. And I want to get an interactive whiteboard as well because just like you, you want to sit up there and draw what you think is right and then you want to iterate around it because it's probably not right to start with. So we had the sales guy, we had the operations guy, and we had uh, uh, our technology document writing guys. And uh, we would take one hour. We said one and a half hours to two hours for each module yep. and this guy will just handwrite whatever you are talking and then he will two document writers will leave the office and two new document writers will come in so we did three or four modules a day and we had eight document writers and next day morning 15 minutes those documents would be written and we'll review it and if you all liked it with few changes here and there we would sign it on a piece of paper and one team would start building a, a demo. Uh, nothing to do with working parameter, but something like which you could start doing a demo tomorrow morning to even the CEO of the company or take it to five different customers and show it to them, right? And yep. we had that in about 15 days' time. With, wow. that, with that being in our tables and we were taking it to customers, we were taking it to our CEOs, we were taking it to our marketing team, Everybody was seeing something which is working. It was it was not connected to the back end. It was not connected to our server. But they could feel what's going to look like. That gave immense feedback, positive and negative. But there were more positive feedbacks because they were able to feel it is not a document. 
And from there we said, okay, now we freeze things and next 30 days we do nothing. You guys work out on your marketing plan and we work out on the technology build out plan. In next 30 to 60 days we'll be ready and we'll do a 15 day testing and we'll start releasing and God later, I surely busted all the CMM level 5 uh, practices that time and I got quite a number of audit comments for that because City <laughs> had but that's what is called agile uh, development now. Yeah, it's really funny. So I was going to make the joke. So you've taken all of the things that you've learned at Citigroup and you've taken them to Monexo. And that means that every time you build a feature, you have 35 people in a room and two document writers at Monexo, right? Not 35. <laughs> now we have, we have about six people. Uh, that's right. a very small team. But yes, that's how we exactly do. But it is uh, though, right? In other words, you do it the same way. You just don't do, don't do it with the excess of resources. And part of the reason why, and I worked at Citigroup as well, I think you probably saw that, is that you don't have to get the buy-in of 15 different departments. You just have to get the buy-in of six different people. And it's, it's a much faster way to do agile development. But methodically, it's the same thing, I guess. Yes, it is. It is. So exactly you hit the point on the correctly that we don't have to get so many buy-ins. It's five or six people and uh, we just sit together and we hash out what we need, what's this going to give us in a business or a consumer experience. And if all of us are there, it just works out very quickly. So can you talk a little bit now about after working at City for more than two decades and you know, the experience you got, and I like this too, right? And there's so, some parallel to what happened to me. I started off in the back office too, and I didn't mind, right? It wasn't the sexiest part of Morgan Stanley. But what it taught me was that if you don't know how to sort of settle a trade, then no matter what you invent in the front office, it's never going to work because it can't make any money because it can't settle. So understanding the back to front processes and how business itself is really just a series of highly efficient um, operational processes that sort of end up in a product somewhere or vice versa. But those things all have to work together. So learning that at the beginning, I thought, I think for you, just like it was for me, was really important. Because once you get on the product side and you create a new product or create a new service like you did with the online banking, you understand that it always has to get processed as well and what that operational process has to look like too. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, it's, it's a, I think... Uh, uh, which was the shoe company which was selling on internet, the first one? Uh, Zappos. Zappos. So if you look at Zappos, has the same ethos or culture that everybody has to be in the warehouse and attend call center before they can start doing anything else. Sure, because how else do you know what the customer needs or wants or what the yes. whole experience is like? It's impossible yes. to know, right, otherwise? Yes, yes. So, so tell I, me, I, how, how, did you, how did you get the team together? So you're at City for two decades and then you think, wait a second, I know what's happening. Right, in a way, you kind of could see the future in reverse, right? Because you look back to India and you think, now that I've built all this stuff, I see a gap in the market, right? Yes. So um, how do you exactly. get the team together? Where does your team come from? And then what's the, what's the market you're trying to address? And then let's go through on how you, exactly you're addressing it and what's going on. Sure. Uh, so a couple of events happened uh, in this whole process. Uh, I was introduced to peer-to-peer -peer lending by the founder of Zopa in UK. Uh, and he had just been doing an experiment for one year in 2006. That's when I met him in December. Uh, ironically, the conference was called The Future of Banking. And we <laughs> were th 30 bankers and he was the only non-banker. Got it. 
uh, it was really fascinating the way he explained the concept. Uh, it was very nascent, and I would say it was nothing more than uh, 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 yellowpages.com. dot com. Right. But, uh, but then I started going to US more frequently, and I started seeing Lending Club and Prosper uh, growing rapidly in two thousand ten and two thousand eleven. But I was just too involved in that city, uh, and and it never sort of gave me time to think what's going to happen. But then I started going to China also quite frequently, and I started seeing the same trend which happened in U.S. happening in China. In 2012, few companies were there, but in 2014 there were hundreds of companies, and all were growing like 200%. And we were trying to set up our own bank and grow the business there. Uh, I said, this is really interesting. These are exactly like bank. But they don't have a balance sheet. They right. serve both sides of the customer, savers and those who need money. And it's more efficient. There's no treasury gap. Uh, they have the same technology as a bank has, but they're using new technologies which bank is never going to use and never going to experiment because they would want to only experiment with something which is IBM sold or something else. So. I said this is not working out. Uh, this doesn't look like a trend. And 2008 onwards, banking had really become very, very inward focused. Right. For more shareholder return discussion, more about optimizing expenses than innovation. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point, right? I was at, I was at Citigroup in 2007 and 2008 in Tokyo, and it really came down to how do we cut costs insanely? And in a, in a way, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of the frontline. Um, employees problem it was just the top line you know the management had bought all these sort of disparate businesses and trying to combine them together into one this was you know sandy wiles big vision right yes i mean that was you know how do i own every part of somebody's financial journey the problem was that it became really inefficient and the bank sort of spent that time focusing on a bunch of things one was how do i survive in the new regulatory environment and two how do I survive in an environment where my expenses are way too high and none of my systems internally globally talk to each other properly right Yes. And so I said, this is really, so I started doing research of how things are working out, what the challenges, what are the regulators saying? And, and I said, this is it. I, I think it's, it's like uh, you've been uh, uh, cooking at a, as a chef in a five-star restaurant for many years. Right. Uh, can you sort of leave that and build your own company and build it out? Uh, it's hard so, work. It's it's very it, if you if you think of a, a character in Indian mythology Ramayana, the man with twelve heads, Ravana. Yep. Literally, he has twelve heads. That's what an entrepreneur feels like because right. when, when you are at city, you are one head. You are a product head. That's all you think. If you have a problem with HR, you pick up a phone, you speak to the HR head or HRP team. They take care of it. Right. If you have a legal work, you you call the legal team and they take care of it. If you have a technology thing, you call them up. But here, you have this all the 12 heads attached to you. Right. So you literally have to compartmentalize yourself and say, okay, I'm a PR manager for the next one hour. I'm a HR head for the next one hour. I'm an accountant for the next one hour. And I'm a customer representative also or a sales head for next one hour. So in a day, I live all those 12 roles, if possible, uh, most of the time. Yeah, 
And that's what it is being an entrepreneur. It is like being yes. the man with 12 heads, right? And in a way, yes. it's kind of, in, in a way, it's liberating, no? It's liberating. It's very fulfilling. It is uh, a learning journey. Uh, like I would say I'm back in 90s where I was learning a lot. Yeah. And now in between when you become very senior, you start seeing papers, you don't have that opportunity to interact with customers, you interact with only few people. So you always see from their lenses. But now the canvas is so much more bigger <laughs> yes. and I'm learning every day. Like we're dealing with a new problem and uh, we have to deal with it with, within internal resources which we have. So it's it's very, very uh, fulfilling as well as very satisfying yeah it's really interesting you say this right i remember when i was working at a big company and it didn't matter if it was goldman sachs or citigroup or morgan stanley if a problem arose it was really one of those it, you had that feeling like oh come on for god's sakes can we just get past this thing whereas today you know you're running your own company and when a problem arises you're like okay how can i solve this what's the resolution to this and it's almost fun in a way. Like if there's no problems, I feel like I haven't had a productive day. Yeah, yeah. And, and and again, like I I was I was completely taken back. This is like a aha moment which happened recently. A new customer came on our platform. Okay. He got serviced. Now, if he had a problem, he would have. My number is not published on the website. Sure. He would have called my call center, and somebody would have given me a heads up that, hey, we could not handle him, he's maybe calling you, or he's going to write to you. Somebody would have given me a heads up. Right. And I was like in the middle of an important meeting, and this phone rang, and it kept ringing a couple of times. So I excused myself and went and picked it up, and he said, I'm a customer of yours. And my heart sank for a few minutes, because why would a customer call me? Calling me, me. yeah. Uh, and my, I like literally, like... I was like 120% attentive now because I don't know what the problem could right. have been and he's calling me directly. And he said, can I speak to you? I said, yeah, sure, sure, please go ahead. And uh, there he says, I want to give you a compliment. Ah, wow. I was like starting to breathe again. <laughs> I was like, breathe again. This guy is going to give you a compliment. He, he says, your platform is as simple as an iPhone unboxing. Wow. Wow. I, this was a compliment I keep telling my team that, guys, all this compliment means is that we have done something right. One customer tells you this, 10 more customers will tell you that exactly. over a period of time. They'll tell in their different ways. And I asked him, why do you say so? He says, I've been using similar platforms uh, in India. And I, I came across yours through a friend of mine and said, let's give it a try. Uh, and I can tell you, I was on your platform within 10 minutes. I got my account ready to operate in same day. And next day, I brought in money and I was ready to lend out. And I lent out. Now, in all other experiences, I had to go back and forth. I had to pick up phone, speak to anybody. This was like a 100% digital experience. That's what I was looking for. Right. And that's what you were trying to build as well, right? And that's what we were trying to build. So I said, wow, this is really good. And we have been getting so many customers, but somebody, we, we are more, in, humans are more complaining. I was going to say, what's the likelihood? And, and I'm just thinking about this from my perspective, right? I mean, I sat on multiple trading desks and I rarely ever had a customer, no matter what, how great the work was that we did. And we did great work. 
the likelihood that a customer was going to call to say, you did a great job, as opposed to you are a complete idiot, was more like one in a hundred. Yes. But, this so is the I, thi- but this is the thing, too. Tell me you have not, from just even that one client, you're not completely inspired to build like better, harder, faster, just because that feeling is so great. Yes. And I said, thank you very much. Like, I, I know this, every customer who would call, and that was my attitude also beginning of the call, right? This is going to be a complaint call if it's a customer. Right. I never expected. So very few people do it. It was a learning for me. I have become, um, I, I now say good things about people. I do complain. Like recently I was on a, on a plane and uh, the check-in counter guy was just amazing. He, for the first time, somebody greeted you. Good afternoon. Yep. I hope you had a good day on the way in. Uh, can I get you a window seat? Uh, and I asked him a few things. He said, and he was very, very helpful. So I went over to his supervisor and did exactly what this gentleman had done to me. Correct. And I felt very good about it. So right. I think as, as a human beings, we have to compliment. We have to uh, uh, give, give feedback on a positive note. We do too much of complaints. Uh, regularly rather than give compliments to each other yeah so I mean, it, it, it made my day it made my team's day and i think if you all did a little more we'll encourage the world to be a better place yeah and to a certain extent what you're saying is it almost changes your perception of the way you look at when you receive service from somebody and that one yes. you're more likely to say thank you to like the one out of four waiters or waitresses that comes to your table and just gives you exceptional service rather than the one who you know, isn't paying attention, spills coffee on like your partner's dress, you know, because for the person who's trying really hard, you know, you can complain about someone who's doing a bad job and they're never going to listen. But if you compliment someone who's doing a great job, it's, it'll literally change their life. And that's amazing, yes. actually. Yes, yes. Wow. And I wonder if there's a way to sort of teach your staff, you know, your call center staff, all that kind of stuff, like what that feeling is like so that they can, they're imbued with it. And when they give customer service, they're not setting themselves up. Do you know what I mean? Because you can have an attitude that says, oh, God, this is just going to be a complaint. Or how can I genuinely help somebody so that they feel like I've done a really good job and then they want to thank me? So, uh, and, and, and this is something which I'm learning from uh, my own experience as well as I've read a couple of things about Zopa, uh, Zappos, uh, how they don't have a script on a telecalling desk. <laughs> Right. Uh, when you give a script, unfortunately, that guy is bound by that script. Right. And and we had a we had a matrix called talk time okay. at city our city bank uh, because we want to be productive. We want to be giving queries and move into the next call. But what I tell my team is, I'm not worried about how long you speak to customer, but you should have a good relationship building. Like I'll give you an example. When I moved from Singapore to Hong Kong, I was canceling my Amex card. And that Amex telecaller told me something, two things he said. Oh, I can hear a lot of boxing going on. It's about 1.30. Do you want me to order a pizza? Wow. Wow. Right? That's what is wow. And then the second thing he said, do you have 10 minutes? I said, really? He said, no, no. I want to help you get your card in Hong Kong. So you're going to arrive when? I said, on three days from now. He said, yeah, perfect. In three days time, we'll have your card ready. And it'll be delivered to your guest house, uh, a service apartment. I said, this is really fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing. Right? Two things which is not scripted and nobody can script that for you. And it takes more time, right? So this is the thing. I want to jump in for a second because when I was in college, 
And this is something no one really knows about me. I took a part-time job doing directory assistance for Southern New England Telephone. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you know what that means, but that means that if someone didn't know a phone number, they'd call directory assistance and say, you know, I'd like to know Mukesh's phone number, where does he live? And I'd, you know, look in the directory and I'd give them the phone number, right? That was way before the internet, obviously. Yes. But the point is that we had scripts too. And mm-hmm. our supervisors were listening into our phone calls and I didn't care. And I went off script all the time. Mm-hmm. But the customers were ridiculously happy. Yes. Because they got so, amazing service. They weren't calling into a robot. But it's the same thing you're saying. That guy who said to you, do you have more time? Already, think about it. You were already mad. You're like, oh, God, I don't want to do a survey. And all he wanted to do was give you more service. But because you're used to the script, yes, you're not ready for the better service. But now you know that. Yes. So that's what I tell my team. Uh, whether it's a borrower or a lender who comes to you, uh, if you don't know something, say I don't know because hey, we haven't built up the whole uh, system where everything is at your fingertip. Uh, but if you don't have it, don't promise him something lofty saying, I'll call you in five minutes. Tell him it'll take some time, but remember that we'll call him back to ensure that we give him service truthfully. And whatever his question, we should not be in a hurry to sort of close the call, right? And whatever is normal to for him to know, at fingertips, let's give it to him on a SMS on a monthly basis. Sure. So all our all our borrowers, lenders get their statement on time on electronic. So they don't call us for uh, routine things which used to happen earlier. What my bank account balance is, what my loan outstanding is, can I prepay? These things are very standard for them to have them available at any point of time nice. on internet or on the call uh, or or on their SMS. But how do we give them when they call? It's really a problem. Nobody likes to call a, a financial service. It's not a fun thing to do. Not really. So if it's not a fun thing to do, it's they're already in pain of something. And if they're in pain of something, how do you resolve that? And how do you understand and empathize and be in issues at that time? That's what I tell my team. And, and we said, let's, let's just learn from each experience, give them a wow experience, and then that's it. We'll see where it takes us. So it's no pressure on the team right now to convert uh, every customer into a sales, give them general information. So like my team who's sales head, he says, why do you start your all your presentations saying this is not a guaranteed product? I said, because I don't want to miss sell. Typically, anybody would say, oh, make 20% return on a peer-to-peer lending. And that sounds very exciting. Right, it does. But it's not necessarily 100% guaranteed. So, Yes, so there is a potential that while you are telling, he should wake up and then say, okay, I, how do I minimize risk? Right. So that's where our, our culture is about telling people, first of all, don't tell anything which is misleading give them time and and i have turned away customers i have young customers who come to me who are like in early age of 25 27 they want to invest maybe a thousand us dollar on our platform and i tell them no don't do that Uh, you should first go and learn how to invest in mutual fund and bonds and everything and then if you've evolved a customer then you come to us because if you haven't even bought an equity till date uh, and you don't have a risk appetite of even losing a, a hundred US dollar, then don't take this bet. You're better off putting your money in fixed deposit. Right, because you at least know what you're getting before you start. 
Yes. So so don't don't look at twenty percent and jump onto this bandwagon because there could be two or three percent loss rates, uh, and if economy turns badly, there could be higher. So don't don't just look at one parameter. Risk and reward are hand in hand in this whole process, and it's very important for whether you're a partner to me, whether you're a customer to me, or you're a team member of ours. You got to understand that, and that's what you have to tell to the next guy. Wow. So what exactly, like how is business going? What's the growth like? You had said that one of the reasons why you moved back to India was because the traction was getting to be so good and that I presume just managing the growth from Hong Kong was just getting to be too hard, right? Uh, yes, a couple of things. We had launched our platform in Hong Kong too. Oh, okay. How, however, the regulatory environment was not conducive, so we uh, pulled the plug out there. So in a way, we pivoted from... Uh, not the product or the vision which we have. We pivoted geography uh, and and focus now only on India. Two, uh, the growth here is fantastic, and and we are seeing uh, the consumers are and and we haven't even scratched the service. We are just servicing the urban uh, consumers right now. And even there, the demand is high, even though the banking is very, very percolated in the urban cities. Uh, there are more branches now uh, than you can imagine of banking. But the young generation, urban generation, is all about mobile phones and doing it yourself, DIY. They don't like to go and do human interactions in a banking service. And those kind of consumers are starting to come and like our, our product. So we are trying to figure out how to be in their lifestyle journey. Uh, example being, our consumers are starting to do executive education while they work. That's a huge change in India because in India earlier when we were growing up, it was all about study, 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 get your post-graduation degree, get a job, get married and have kids. Right. And then that's it. But here now we are seeing a change in behavior where consumers are saying, or young generation is saying, that I've studied my graduation, I'll take a break, I'll go and do a job, I'll figure out what my, uh, what I enjoy doing, and I'm going to build my skill sets around that. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the, what you're talking about is a real paradigm change in the way, I don't think it's just in India, but with the way that this generation is thinking about work in the context yes. of their overall lives. But it's also interesting, this whole do-it-yourself um, concept is real, and it means that people don't want to go to a bank necessarily for a loan. They'd rather go to their friends for a loan. And even if it's not their friends, it's their cohort, right? And that means that peer-to-peer -peer is potentially really a massive way to disintermediate the banks. Like you said, you know, the banks were so focused before on expense cutting as opposed to building, using new technologies to build new services, right? So the likelihood that a bank could understand the risk profile, remember it goes back in a way to what you were doing 25 years ago where you'd send somebody to somebody's house to see if they had a refrigerator, you know, a way to cook and they actually lived at the address where they said, now you're using technology to do that, you know, writ large where you can actually not go to a place but simulate going to the countryside. And this is true yeah. in any country, right? Yes. Um, and allow them to do sort of a whole bunch of data analysis and risk analysis just based on the data that they have on their mobile phone. I, uh, and I'll just give you one more example, Michael, here. Uh, frankly, the, again, the banks are big. They can crush all the fintech very easily. Yeah. They challenge their own mindset. 
their ability to uh, give a go to a gray area, uh, whether it's regulatory or uh, legal work. So I'll give you an example. Today, we are doing contracting between borrowers, lenders, and ourselves completely electronically. Now, if you apply digitally to a bank, once you applied, they'll send a human being to make you sign on a dotted line. Right. So what's the point of doing this whole digital process? It's no point, actually. Right? And Indian IT Act, way back in 2000, recognized it, that you can do electronic contracts. But, you know, there's no incentive for somebody to innovate that. Or the risk for them, the fact that that may, for few loans which go bad, the the legal system may not recognize it. Why wouldn't it recognize it? Because there's no precedence. Right, so there's, no there's no precedence. If there's no precedence, you will make a precedence, right? right? If nobody takes that leap and nobody takes that to court and nobody makes a precedence, then everybody will be sitting where we were in 1990. Yeah, exactly. And nothing would have moved forward. Right? So the legal system... Act, the, the regulatory system has moved, but the adoption is not happening by the big players. They are waiting and watching. And we as a fintech community are taking that leap and changing the paradigm and saying, okay, how do I do things which take days for a old organization and do it in minutes using technology? Right. How do we, how do, we do everything remotely without being in front of a consumer? Yeah. And every day we move forward we are learning. Like I'll give you an example. Our platform in India, we had to rebuild certain components because India bandwidth, the last mile problem is really, really big. We can't have a heavy website going through. It's not like Hong Kong where everybody's on 4G and the 4G is really 4G. Right. Here when you get 4G, you are actually getting 2G. Fair enough. And the bandwidths are poor. So we have to retool that in the market. And we have realized that that's what the sweet spot is. The consumers are changing. They need a new product. They need services which are faster, like instant noodle, instant coffee, instant decision they need. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you made a you made a really good point earlier, and I want and you and you used a word as well called precedent, and I want to give you another precedent. That's kind of it feels like it's off topic, but it's not. And you said that some of these big institutions could crush all of the small and sort of developing fintech companies out there. And I'd like to make an I'd like to make an analogous comment, and that is that you know when Oracle started as a database company in 1987 and 1988. And I remember it because I remember sitting at a desk in Morgan Stanley and talking to somebody about a company named Oracle. You know, Larry Ellison used to work at IBM, and he tried to build relational databases because they were actually based upon research done by IBM fellows, um, you know, in the 80s and even in the late 70s. But getting that done and set up inside of IBM was impossible because they already had their own database product and their own database structure. And he was like, okay, fine. And he left. Now, nobody ever thought about Oracle as a startup per se, but that's exactly what it was. And, you know, IBM, again, could have crushed Oracle and probably tried to, but it was too late. And I think the same thing's going to happen to, you know, companies like Monexo FinTech and other FinTech companies who are just out there innovating rapidly, like you said, with a six-person team as opposed to multiple departments. 
just that ability to iterate really quickly, the agility, as you mentioned earlier, is what's really going to give you the edge, right? And to be fair, you know, you're not, you know, 25 anymore, but you're behaving like a 25 with the knowledge of a 50-year-old, and that's, that's hard to compete with, I think. Yes, I, I completely agree. Uh, uh, in a fintech world, uh, you need experience, uh, but at the same time, because it's technology and the te- technology which you have never experienced yourself, you need to start thinking like a 21-year or 25-year-old person. Exactly. exactly. So, yes, it's, it's a very good combination if you can make those two to come together. And there have been lovely success stories across Asia-Pacific uh, on fintech. And I think we are yet to scratch the full surface or full uh, uh, possibilities around fintech, uh, which is uh, happening. Payments are starting to show how people are talking about a cashless economy, right? Uh, India has leapfrogged from, uh, because of demonetization, to wallets like crazy. I've come back and I'm now seeing uh, the things which are not happening in Hong Kong or Singapore is happening in India, like everybody uses mobile wallets. Uh, I'm able to move money from one bank account to another bank account in a few minutes, which is not possible in Hong Kong. Like Hong Kong is in some way... I would say still catching up in in banking services because of uh, large monolithic practices like HSBC owns 30% or 40% of the market share yeah. of every product. Right. Uh, along with Hang Seng, they're like 60% of the market share. So nobody's willing to change the market. So I laugh at Hong Kong a couple of times where you go and deposit a check at the branch, it costs you nothing. But you move money from a bank A to bank B, they charge you both sides, and it could be as high as fifty dollars. I was going to say fifty dollars, twenty-five bucks a side, right? Yeah, but he, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and and here you go and make them work harder by putting a check, and they will spend fifty dollars or maybe hundred dollars to process it, and they, that's free. Right. Uh, so it's it's insane that they haven't figured out that they want to move customers to internet. Uh, it'll be less traffic on the branch. It'll be less work for them. But I think somewhere somebody's thinking, oh, God, I have to guard my money flow from one bank to another. Right. So let's make it harder for the customers. Right. Look, this inter- doesn't happen. It doesn't, doesn't happen that way. No, it doesn't. And look, disintermediation, right? So the removal of an intermediary, right, is, is, it's going to happen. And it's going to happen so fast that the big banks will wonder, like, why they didn't do it themselves. But when it does happen, it's going to be too late. And I'll, I'll leave with this, right, because then I want to let you go. I was in China. I was in Shanghai in, um, in September at a big Huawei event and we went outside the convention hall right the conference hall to get a cup of coffee and the woman in front of us was was from Shanghai and she took out her phone <laughs> and she paid for her coffee with WeChat yes. and then she looked at us you know it was it was like four ugly american men and she turned around literally looked at us chuckled it was really funny the way she laughed she's like you can't do this in Boston kind of thing. <laughs> and she was right. And and she wasn't like, you know, she was kind of, you know, kind of needling us, we would say, right? But in a way, she was right. But the the, the thought process there was, you know, you have so much catching up to do, and we're just leapfrogging everything you're doing, and by the time you figure it out, it's going to be too late. And I just loved that attitude, just that look on her face like you have no idea what's coming. It was really great, actually. And you're right. In the fintech space you're in, you're in the right spot, right? And now you just have an execution problem. Can you out-execute all of your competitors? And it sounds like you understand service, you understand product development, 
um, and you understand what the market gaps are. So it looks like you're perfectly positioned. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. I, I cannot uh, imagine the world uh, the next generation is growing in and uh, the fact that for them everything is available at fingertips uh, yep. and uh, uh, while that, that's convenient uh, and the space is just starting to boom. Uh, uh, driverless car in 10 years time, I'm looking forward to riding in that everywhere yeah. possibly yeah so. i mean we could we, you know if you've listened to anything that i've said about driverless vehicles you know that i can i can go on and on about my vision for what autonomous vehicles you know i don't even say like a driverless car and i think you i think i think you understand the difference right but yes. we could talk about that forever look i want to thank um, mukesh bubna founder of manexo fintech this has been a fabulous conversation and um, a deep learning for me so i really appreciate your time thank you again so much thank you michael have a good day Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.